out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone, today I talk with my friend Raymond. I'm so happy to introduce Raymond to you today. It's really weird how synchronicity works. I thought I saw him at our local shop a while ago, but I thought that must be mistaken because he lives far away from you. But then I saw a Facebook posting that he's dating a girl up the road from you. That was when I asked him to come and talk to us, and he immediately agreed. Then I ran into him the day after the invite and the day before the interview at a CD launch. Freaky. I love when things like that happen. I had it in the back of my head that Raymond was in the ministry at some stage in his life, but the puzzle pieces in my head didn't complete the picture to make that the truth. Today I'm very happy to hear during this chat that I'm not completely delusional <laughs> and that it is in tr- indeed a fact. This podcast is supported by the first layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. This is Raymond's story. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Good afternoon, Raymond. How are you doing? Cool, thanks, Freddy. How are you, man? I'm well, thank you. Welcome to Meet Me in the Field. I'm so happy to have you here. You've been on my list of people to talk to right from the start. Wow, that's cool. Yes, but because you live on the other side of the, of the what shall we call it, the bay. Yeah. On the other side of the bay, I just never thought it was going to happen. Hmm. And then when I saw you dating a girl on my side of the bay, I thought, <laughs> jump in, grab this opportunity. And then how weird that we ended up at the same function last night. I know, very cool. <laughs> it was synchronicity, if, if ever there is. Raymond, are you Cape Townian? So, I, I am. I've lived in Cape Town for coming on 20 years. I grew up in Johannesburg. Okay. So I lived in Joburg until I was about 26. Okay. Uh, so in fact, I've lived in Cape Town now over 20 years. Okay. So, yeah. so you arrived in about 98, 99. 99, yeah. yeah. I arrived in 95. <coughs> yeah. So, so we both we both qualified. Yeah, I'm a naturalized Cape Townian. So. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and where in Joburg did you grow up? Uh, so a little bit all around the place, predominantly on the the East Rand, so okay. in the Edenville area, Bedford View, okay. um, kind of on the on the Benoni side of Kempton Park. But I'd say probably most of my social circle, my formative years, the times when I was kind of growing up, were in the Edenville, Bedford View area. I went to Bedford View High School. Okay. Um, but a lot of my mates went to Edenville High because I lived in Edenville. Okay. So, yeah, kind of that, that whole East Rand So why did you go to Bedford View if you look? Because Bedford View was a technical high school. Okay. And I wanted to do have a technical education. So my family were all artisans. So, okay. Um, my father worked at AECI. Um, he was a fit returner. Started there when he was 19, was there until he got retrenched in his late 50s. Oh, wow. My uncles were draftsmen on my mom's side. Uncles were airplane technicians and stuff. Okay. In fact, I was the first person in three generations in my family to get a degree. Oh, wow. Mm. So, I mean, some of my younger cousins have subsequently followed, yeah. but I was the first person in the family to get a degree because awesome. everybody else focused on trades yeah. and that type of stuff. So, the conversation in my family was always, go and get a trade, then you've got something to fall back yeah. on. 
you know, we're just like, nowadays, <laughs> can't get a degree. Go and get a degree so you got something to fall back on. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, no, I, went to, I was the first guy to get a, uh, get a degree. Okay. okay yeah. My father was a tyler of trade, and he always tells a story. Part of their training was to learn to build. Yeah. And in Johannesburg, they built some of the builders in Johannesburg city centre. And in winter, they would kind of hang the scaffold. They didn't have this building scaffold. The, the, the platform that you stood on were, were hung from, from the top. Mm. So the wind would blow. It would blow you away from the wall. It would blow you back to the wall. <laughs> I would shit myself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did you study? So I studied theology. Okay, so I wasn't wrong. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> so actually, when I, I, st- I, started, I started studying engineering. So I, okay. did, I did two years of engineering. At WITS? Uh, at WITS Technicon. Okay. So, and then, f- um, I li- so, and the reason I did engineering was our whole family was in engineering. So we had, my mom had an engineering business. Okay. And the idea was that I'd then go and work in the business, take over the family business. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but you know, it just it just just fun doing technical stuff at school, you know, and sitting with my dad. My dad makes model trains as a okay. hobby, and so when I was a kid, we'd sit in the workshop and we'd spend time together doing that. So it was a fun part of my adolescence, my growing up. But when it began to be something that I needed to focus on to build a career, mm-hmm. I realised actually I didn't like coming home, smelling of metal and <laughs> solvents and stuff at the end of the day. That, that, that's yeah, just it's fun to do. I'm still a relatively handy person, but I didn't want to do that as a job. Okay. And the thing that re- that I was really passionate about at that stage of my life was um, theology. Was actually being okay. a, being a minister. Did and you grow up with religion in the house? No, not at all. So how did so that happen? I became a Christian when I was fifteen. Okay. And so my grandmother was always quite. Yeah, you know, quite a staunch, relatively conservative Christian. Roman Catholic. Or? No, no, Baptist. Okay. My my mom was not. So as a result, when I was growing up, you know, we my mom we didn't go to church, we didn't do the church thing, but I had a a relatively clear connection into the church through my grandmother. And I used to cycle competitively and then the one year the church just organized a tour to Northern Transvaal. Okay. And I went and when I was there then, you know, that I had a uh, spiritual experience which then pretty much changed me for the rest of my life. Okay, and at that cool. point then you know, became a Christian and was very actively involved in church. When I left school, my first year out of school, um, so the gap year that I did, I went on a music and drama team that travelled around the country, being based in a local church, but then but working in schools and that type of stuff. So every week you were in a different town. Yeah, I realised then at that point that that was pretty much more what I wanted to do with my life than definitely okay. the engineering and that type of stuff. Came back from that, did my national service, then uh-huh. the whole conversation, you know, you've got to have something to fall back yeah. on. And that was then into the engineering space. And after two years, I just said, no, I'm done, yeah. done. And I moved on and then spent four years studying theology. Okay. Wow. So many questions popping to my head. The first one is that you're only five years my junior. We figured out last night. You're 47. <laughs> 47, yeah. Yeah. So you started cycling competitively before cycling was the fad. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. So you were ahead of the trend there. And then you took a gap year. Yeah, when I left school. Which was also ahead of, ahead of the trend. <laughs> no, it, wasn't, it wasn't the thing to, to take a gap year when we were young. You yeah, you went to Vasta, you went to die for your country, yeah. or you went to work. You didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So how the hell did you manage to take a gap year? <laughs> well, I just took it. <laughs> I didn't really ask. Well, um, well you know, Freddie, I'm not really <coughs> um, 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 play by the rules. Well, <laughs> 
and nobody's ever, ever actually pointed it out but you know so it was you know the opportunity was there it was something to do and i needed to raise funding so it, you know it wasn't paid for my parents didn't pay for me to do it okay. so i had to raise funding and get sponsorship to make it possible so yeah you know as you pointed out now i guess it was not something that normally happened I mean, like but I mean, that in your school sport, for instance. No, no, no. So I didn't. I so didn't how did you get into it? I used to ride my bicycle, and I enjoyed it. I and then I had to ride my bicycle. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, I just uh, it was something that I I got on. I enjoyed. I used to. I have to. I mean, I started riding to school when I was ten. The good old days when you could still load a child on a bicycle yeah. and say the school is about 15 blocks away. Off you go, uh, bye. I to, so I used to ride. So when I was 10 years old, school was 10 k's away. Oh, my word. Yeah. And I used to ride to school. And then, yeah, when I got to high school. Um, you know that's child abuse, don't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> These days, they don't definitely get to my child Absolutely abuse. crazy. So, uh, yeah. And then, it's, and then I guess just the, the commuting bit then became something where, you know, you started to hear about fun rides and cycling clubs and joining them. Then I got a couple of mates joining me. And then before you knew it, you know, there was a group of us and we were, we were, we were good. Before you, know, you we knew were, it, you were shaving your leg and off you go. Exactly, <laughs> Exactly, and I can't tell you how horrific the first experience was of shaving my legs and how my shins bled and my Achilles heel bled and the back of my so, knees so, so, bled. So that's how you ended up in ICU the first time. Getting a blood transfusion. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, and yeah, I didn't do sport at school. Okay. Uh, so cycling pretty much took it up. And, you know, so I, you know, I would never play rugby because I would get, if I got hurt, it means I couldn't ride my bike. Okay. Um, and that said, you know, I was... I was committed, I loved my cycling, but um, I was fortunate that I had mates, some of them who were a lot better than me, and so it was good riding with them, and yeah, you know, I, was, I had fun, and I rode well into my into my 30s. So I basically stopped cycling when um, my children, when my son was born. Okay. Um, but until then, I, yeah, I cycled very competitively when I was in high school. Um, in my late 20s, got relatively competitive again. Um, a friend and I did the Augustin racing on racing tandems and we came 10th oh, in the wow. racing tandems which was so, yeah you know you know came a couple of top threes and a couple of top 10 placings in some of the bigger you know the races here in the yeah. Western Cape never you know just kind of a, a good fun rider never yeah. you know never ever, ever anything that would have been a prospect for a career okay um, to just so you were never exactly called by die data saying kind of join our team <laughs> <laughs> damn <laughs> you're still waiting for the call to <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> I'm still shaving my legs and I <laughs> every now and then I have to try it's and good move. to be prepared no, every now and then I have to move my gut out of the way so I can see my legs to shave my legs <laughs> I've got the same problem these days <laughs> so glad to hear that what were your parents' reaction when you came home and said I've given my life to God on one hand, it was like, uh, I guess this is just a phase. Yeah. Let him do it. The um, same as kind of, I'm mum, dad, I'm going, oh, it's just a phase. Okay. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And then it, I guess I've, I've, after a while, you know, I mean, all my mates were there. My social circle was there. I wasn't a teenager who used to um, kind of drink and do drugs and party and go out late at night. So I guess on, on that level, it probably ended up being a bit of a relief. Um, okay. But I think by the time... Yeah, by the time I was a young adult, um, it was something that I, oh, when I say young adult, by the time I was like kind of ending high school, um, I guess I realized that it was a relatively um, serious part of my yeah. life. That said, 
it was always something that was not something that we that we ever we were ever really able to talk about or so it was always something that well maybe Raymond will grow up eventually. Okay. Um, and to be honest, as I look back now as a forty-seven year old, I do see an immaturity in my spirituality at that point. But that said, um, it was still something that was a, a fundamental part of my self-definition and my self-concept and my self-awareness moving through adolescence and puberty and everything into young adulthood. Um, Very difficult getting, phase getting, in anybody's life. Yeah, and I think for me, actually, it was probably less difficult than for many other people because I had a very stable social circle. I had... I had the benefit of very clear guidelines and cool. points of reflection that gave me stability that, yeah, it wasn't something that I ever questioned or doubted about myself okay. um, or about life. And I wasn't a fundamentalist person at all, even at that point. Um, so I still had a lot of space and openness and acceptance of people who had a different worldview and perspective to mine. Okay. But being, and still today, being open to other people's worldviews and differences in no, in no sense compromises my view of what's important, what makes sense to me. Okay. So I'm happy that not everybody has to look at life and see things the yeah. same way that I do. Um, and I'm able to often, I think, see things from other people's perspectives. Um, but yeah, my views of my life and myself and my space are, you know, relatively solid. Cool. Which was a gift. When and where did you study theology? So I studied at the Baptist Theological College in, in Joburg. Okay. And where is that? It's in Randburg. And it was, it was, yeah, it was awesome. You know, when I was in high school, I kind of just coasted through. You know, I just I did what I needed to do to pass. Mm-hmm. And I had no real interest in doing anything more than that. When I, so you weren't doing sport, you weren't studying. So what the hell? You were cycling. Riding my bicycle and bunking. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> so, again, it's weird. I didn't bunk that much. I mean, I was, they made me deputy head boy when I was in high school, when I was in a trick, and I have no idea why. <laughs> because, you know, it wasn't like I was uh, anything in, you know, anything yeah. hectic or amazing at that point. But, you know, so you I was, must have I was, done something right, though. Well, I don't know. You know, it's, again, when I look back, I'm not exactly sure how and why that happened. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've got a brain that works well. Wow. And so... I was able to make it through high school just on memory. Um, Fuck so, people like you. <laughs> so, I had to work on awesome. Yeah, so when I when you know when I wrote matric finals, I studied a half an hour for geometry oh. and a half an hour for trig, and I didn't study for anything else. I just wrote the exams based on what I remembered. Okay, you need to finish this conversation. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk to people like you. Yeah. <laughs> so that so, so I was you know I was fortunate. That was the way that I yeah. kind of went through school, coasted through you know got. Ugh, yeah, average marks, nothing spectacular. And then went and studied engineering, and engineering was okay, but engineering I needed to apply myself and I really didn't want to. And so, but when I got to studying theology for the first time in my life, it was something I was really passionate about. Yeah, it ended up being one of the best learning experiences of, oh, wow. you know, of my life. No, really, I loved it. I loved learning, I loved the stuff that was there, and it gave me. So now in my career as a professional speaker, a lot of the stuff that are the skills that, that I was given to become a good minister are actually very similar skills that what I need now for doing things. So being able to, you know, track through disparate bits of information and get a story, then being able to actually pull that story together into something that people want to listen to, 
and then actually having the ability to stand in front and stand on a stage and be yeah. able to communicate in a way that people want to listen to you. All of those are things that were trained That's actually into me when I was studying to be yeah. and those same skills. So, you know, hermeneutics, homiletics, you know, hermeneutics being able to get the message out of a text, yeah. homiletics being able to take that message and then put it into a structured talk or speech, okay. you know, and then the most brutal class we had was preaching class you know you'd stand up in front of a group of 20 of your of you know your, your colleagues and you'd be given a topic and you or a passage and you had to preach and uh, of a, in a 40 minute class you'd preach for 15 minutes and then sit down the other 25 minutes everybody in the class would just basically just rip ripped, ripped, and ripped in your asshole <laughs> so yeah i tell you where it went wrong what they would have done different yeah. what you could have done better and it was quite a brutal exp- mm. exercise there but very unchristian <laughs> no, I, I would say exactly the opposite because it was always done with the perspective of saying, how can I actually help you? No, make okay. it? It, was, it was an investment. So it wasn't a professional jealousy thing. It was really, no. let, me, let me really contribute to, yeah, completely. to this. Yeah. And so, no, I, I would never ever have said professional jealousy. In fact, for me, it's when I look at some of my colleagues in the speaking circuit, there are some people who I can see that they're good at what they do but they would really have benefited from having somebody being as brutally honest. Okay. Um, because you can't be that brutally honest now in your 40s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, goes are just way too fragile. <laughs> yeah, amazing. The arrogance of youth carried, carried us through a lot of stuff when we were young. Completely. It's interesting that I did an interview with a Methodist, what do you call them? Priest, minister. Yeah. Person. Alan Story. On, yeah. And he called himself a storyteller. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what I do. I mean, my work is I say, that's exactly the way I introduce myself. You know, I talk about the you know, trends around the future world of work, but I tell people when I step up on stage is I'm essentially a storyteller. So I yeah. travel around the world and I tell stories about the future of work. And I said, it's basically what used to happen in the Middle Ages. You would have like a minstrel who would go from town to town, from fireplace to fireplace and sing songs. Yeah. And the songs that were sung were pretty much the stories that they take from one village to another. And in so doing, just begin to share wisdom, propagate information, um, form and build community. Okay. And we don't have that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but we have conferences, we have events, we, and that has actually become the modern day, give it the whole... Uh, village gathers around a fire and listens to the visiting dead talks <laughs> exactly and no that's exactly what it is yeah. and so I'm I'm a person who just shares those stories in a very specific cool. space yeah so did you ever work as a minister yeah yeah, yeah. No, so you I had was, your own so while I was studying I was a youth minister so I worked um, in well in fact before I started studying I so while I was doing engineering I was involved in the church leading the, the youth ministry um, then when I started studying, in my second year, they, um, I was asked if I wanted to go across to a church in Glen Vista in the south of Joburg. Okay. And um, it was very cool because I was, the minister at that church was the only lady minister of a Baptist church. Oh, cool. In South Africa. Well, it was for me, but there were lots of theological challenges and issues because it's a relatively conservative denomination. And I was there for about a year and a half, and then there was all sorts of politics, and the lady who was the minister there was then, she was pretty much moved out, um, and I wasn't going to stay for that, so I left, and then I helped a friend plant a church in Santon. Okay. And then I graduated, and I moved down to Cape Town, because I came down to church in Cape Town for okay. a job. And I was here for a year and a half, 
and uh, we just a year and a half, about a year and a half I was at the church in, in Cape Town, and then I had an affair with the lady in the church, and as a result of that affair, um, my role and my space in full-time church ministry okay. um, ended, and Interesting enough, at the same time, the friend that I'd planted the church with in Sanson came out of the closet. Um, <laughs> and so, and we, we've stayed really good friends. Oh, awesome. um, because we both ended up having quite a lot of disruption and upheaval yeah. in our relationship with the church at the time and maintaining uh, our spirituality and a connection with God um, and grappling with, um, yeah, or, you know. Grappling with what it means to be a Christian and being a Christian in a space where you no longer necessarily are on board with everything that yeah. the the institu- institution of the church does at that time. So, yes. yeah, there were a few a few things that really concerned me at the time that disappointed me, um, which um, very much shifted my view of church that must have been a spiritual crisis for you so yes not to sound very dramatic about it so yes and no dramatic about it it was there was definitely a crisis um, but the crisis was a a self-inflicted one so really just looking in the mirror and asking myself why and how I did this and I got myself to the point you know I've been married for five years so you know why would I do that to my my wife who I love very much and so it was a I love my job, you know, so why would I get myself in a position yeah. where that happens? So that level definitely crisis, but no, it wasn't a crisis of faith. Okay. Um, it was a crisis of institution and a okay. crisis of self, looking at myself. One of the real challenges that I had was that in experiencing discipline myself, which I accepted, um, was that unfortunately my wife, now my ex-wife, ended up being s- subject to the same ah. discipline. Because essentially oh we word. were both moved out of that community that we were part of. And so while I was the person who had made a mess and you know, yeah. accepted it, my ex-wife, who at that point really needed a lot of support and care herself, was effectively out in the wilderness with me too. Yeah. So she was um, forced to, 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 to commit harikiri. Kind of well, she was. Type of thing. She she shared my discipline at a time when the thing that she needed was compassion, not yeah. discipline. And it, it really it, it was a real that was a real crisis issue for me, and really shifted and changed my view of a lot of the institutionalism. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, of the church it is not <laughs> it is not yeah. and again I, I understand why that happened you know because the, the church community had been hurt yeah. by my actions um, but it was a it, there was a formula that was applied and um, you know going back you know you, as you pointed out there, there's very little about my life that's formulaic <laughs> um, and so I was willing to you know to handle stuff and to to carry I'm going to use the word humiliation to carry a degree of humiliation for a period so that my ex-wife could stay connected into that community. Um, just that there, there was very little latitude or, or space given for that option. Okay. Um, and, yeah, that was a... So what year was this now about? Uh, that would have been... It would have been about 2000. Okay. So it was around about the turn of the, of the millennium, yeah. Okay. And we met about... 10 years later, 10, 11 years later. 
No, a little bit, a little bit less than that. So we probably made. Uh, actually, no. Yeah, you're right. We probably made about 2010. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing at that stage in your life? Which stage? It's at 2010 when I met you. Um, at that point, I was running a computer a business that um, built computer games for corporates. Okay. So we were. So. I, long run about way but I eventually got into a space where I was doing working for a, a company that did a lot of professional speaking and trying to set up a consultant side of their business I was at the, also doing um, a master's in philosophy in future studies oh my word at the University of Sunbosch and uh, the, my research project was English Boykin Afrikaans University <laughs> business school um, <laughs> My my research project was on the influence of computer games in the corporate workplace. Okay. And as I was doing in the corporate workplace, yeah. the influence of computer games in the corporate workplace. Yeah. Okay. And as I was, as I, was I doing am frowning research. here for the people who can't see that. There's a very very deep frown on my brow. <laughs> as I did as I was doing the research, then it pretty much got to a point where I saw a business germinated, uh, and the business was to actually go and build computer games for corporates. So where uh, the content was business content, but it looked and felt like a computer game. So people oh learned through simulation using okay. building a computer game. And um, we were, yeah, well, it's a, it's a big thing that happens now, business simulations, but at well, that you're stage... We ahead of the train. Yeah, about five years. <laughs> <laughs> about five years. Um, and um, the thing was that we didn't have a, a talent pool in South Africa to... To continue growing the business and um, a lot of the technology that was available wasn't designed for the limitations of a corporate workplace so my team did an amazing job um, they were brilliant but right about the time that you and I met um, I was in the process of actually shutting the business down because we had picked up a really big deal that would have been that was amazing um, through a couple of poor decisions on my part challenges from the client side um, I ended up having to liquidate the business. Oh, no. And yeah, so very traumatic, you know, mm. and um, that was pretty much the time when we met. And then as once that business was liquidated, I then went to Saudi Arabia for a year and a half. Okay. And I lived in Saudi. Um, so that's where you went? Because okay. we used to see each other often and then yeah. suddenly Yeah, and I was, so I went to Saudi Arabia okay. and I was there for a year and a half. I was there for four weeks, back for a week. My kids and my ex-wife stayed here and I was... Home, yeah, I was home for a week and then back for four weeks. For and a year what and did you do there? There, I subcontracted through one of the big four consulting companies into a company called Sabic. And Sabic is the second biggest company in Saudi Arabia. So, Saudi Aramco does all the oil, Sabic does the petrochemical byproducts. Okay. So, gas, plastics, chemicals, those things. Yeah. And I was on a project where they were trying to unlock. Uh, 1.2 billion dollars out of their working capital over the course of 12 they were looking at 12 24 months and i was there on that project for managing the change and the learning part of the project <laughs> god the, the, the frown just deepens so how the hell was that your your, your business school qualification that brought you into that no 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 because I didn't, I didn't finish that so, okay, so I, how the I didn't finish my I didn't finish my masters because of the, the course company that started um, a friend was approached for the role he wasn't available he said I think Ray will fit I, so when I when I left um, the church I went and I ended up in Dimension Data okay. and I worked oh so you did, you did get the call from Dimension Data <laughs> yeah, I did get the call yeah. 
<laughs> I went to work. Just not for your legs, no, but for your exactly. brain. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to that data and I worked in the um, CRM division, okay. but on the user side, so user acceptance. So basically, one of the big th- challenges that they had was clients were spending tens of millions on this getting this program, the system rolled out, and if users weren't using it then no matter how much they spent, no matter how great the business case was, the thing would fall apart. So we we created a team that basically went in, we worked with the training guys, with the communication guys, with the marketing guys, with the development team, and we focused on building the use case for the users, getting user acceptance as high as possible. Um, awesome. Yeah, so then that, then Dimension Data hit its wobble, and so myself and my colleagues, that whole business unit, we just ex- extracted ourselves out of that data, set up our own business, um, doing pretty much that and then ultimately eventually into organizational transformation um, ah. and ran so we ran that business and then the guys from tomorrow today who were the professional speakers one of the guys I'd studied with studied theology with we bumped into each other in Cape Town he said oh you're doing all this stuff cool come across and help us turn some of our speaking opportunities into consulting okay. deals and then Wisdom Games the gaming company and then Saudi Arabia Okay. And where were you spiritually at that stage? Were you still a churchgoer? Were you yeah. still a... Yeah, no, very much so. so. So what ended up happening was we le- when, when we left the, the small Baptist church that we went, we went to a, a big charismatic church in Cape Town. And it was really for, um, you know, being able to just have a level of anonymity. Um, and we were there and... My ex-wife and I, you know, got a little bit involved. Um, we enjoyed the ethos and stuff. We'd often leave on a Sunday, coming back home, and you know, talk about the, the 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 gaps and the issues and what the person preached about. You know, we'd spit out the pips. You know, like eating a watermelon. You know, get the take the bits we enjoyed, spit out the pips, and carry on. And that was we were, that was all good. And then um, my ex-wife fell pregnant with my son. And at that point, we then realised. You Actually, were still married then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we then we realized at that point we, we just said, look, you know, we're not, we're cool going to church, enjoying the community, some of the friends that we'd made, understanding that th- my ex-wife also had two master's degrees in theology. Okay. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we'd sit down, we'd have good conversations around stuff, spit out the person, move on. But um, we just weren't that comfortable that, uh, uh, you know, that our children would then go into a Sunday school environment or something where they would just be told this is where it is and not necessarily have that insight. So yeah. we then moved to a much smaller, um, more open-minded, but interesting enough, Anglican church in um, in Weinberg. Okay. And that again was just because a friend just said, you know, it's a great place to go. And we had a great time. We connected. We Again, built some friends, you know, net, network, got a little bit involved in the church. Then when That's I got okay. back, when, we'll I, that <laughs> <laughs> when I got from, got back from Saudi Arabia and we got divorced, um, I then said, "Cool, you know, you stay there because that's where the kids were going to Sunday school." And then I found another church uh, close to where I lived. Okay. Um, and now many of my mates that I cycle with and mountain bike with were actually friends that I found in that community. Okay. I don't go to church um, regularly on a Sunday night now anymore. But yeah, that's also just been part of my own journey in realizing that actually, you know, my spirituality, my Christianity is not dependent on my church attendance. On the building. 
Yeah. 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 Well, the building, the Sunday, the structure, the, the cultus, the ritual, and that is not where my Christianity is founded or formed anymore. Okay. Um, so there's a guy called Fala. So, you know, um, Erickson's uh, stages of child development. Yes. Okay, so... But f- <laughs> <laughs> God, for, for a minute I thought he was going to ask me. <laughs> okay, Erickson, I know. Yeah, so Erickson stages of, of child development and of um, personality development. Father did a similar thing for faith. Okay. And he went and he built stages which uh, kind of map to some of Erickson's stages, okay. which is really interesting. Um, but what is interesting with Father's stage of faith development is as you get to the top end of the scale, where a person's faith becomes more and more mature, the interesting thing is, is that it also becomes less and less um, legalistic, yeah. less and less fundamental, um, less and less structured. And actually, a more mature faith increasingly begins to look like an immature faith. Okay. And so what happens then is the people who sit in the middle of the continuum, and if you take Fowler's stages of faith development, it it's kind of almost does map to a bit of a bell curve. So most people sit pretty much within the middle of those yeah. maturity phases and that's relatively legalistic, quite structured. And so what happens is as you, as some people move through and get to a stage on the other end where actually their faith is more mature, it actually begins to look like less than faith. Yeah, like the other side of And the, it looks more the like curve, childish yeah. faith. But, and so it's, it's a, so I, it sounds arrogant and it's not intended to be, but I, I, I feel like my faith has grown through that midpoint. Awesome. And I'm more on the on the upper end, or not, not yeah. the upper end, on the further, ex- further extent of um, Fowler's faith development. And as a result, the, just the, the structure, the uh, lack of questioning, the, you know, just following the herd of yeah. traditional Sunday church attendance is not a critical part or not a fundamental part of my faith, yeah. my relationship with God. It's not dependent on that. And the conversations that I have with friends, with people, tend to be a little bit more challenging, a little bit more open-minded. And, yeah, the interesting thing is that a lot of um, people who have a traditional faith would look at me and, and question whether I have faith. But from looking, you know, from my perspective, looking forward, I can understand and see where they're coming from and why that would be their view and tolerate and accept it without necessarily compromising cool. and feeling that I have to be conservative or fit a particular yeah. mold um, in order to call myself a Christian. Cool. Now, you are now a dad of a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old mm. or somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Teenage children. So I've got a biological son. You're 16, and my daughter's adopted. She's 12 and a half. Oh, cool. Yeah. In terms of spiritual teachings, yeah. where do you stand with them? So, it's interesting. So, when, when they were little, we, you know, we'd take them to Sunday school, we'd take them to church, take them to, and they you know, oh, can't we sleep in? No, we're going to church. You know, that was the way it was. And then, when, when my children got to around about nine, just in terms of the Discipline. This happened with both of them, and I say around about because it wasn't like an exact date. But in terms of physical discipline stuff, with both of them, I sat sat them down and I said, "I will never give you a smack again in your life." I was never a like a excessively physical disciplined person, yeah. but 
My children do get the odd smack on their bum cheek. And My grandmother always said that the pak doen betekker beter as die Bible. Yeah, and again, I had I had very clear principles for myself with with physical discipline for my kids. And the one was, I would never do it if I was cross. Okay. If I was angry, my children never got a smack. Okay. Because then I was actually doing it to vent my anger rather than to discipline them. Very true, yeah. So if I was angry, my children never got a smack. Second thing is, is I would never ever use anything to give my children a smack other than my hand. Okay. Because if it hurt them, it needed to hurt me. Okay. And that was also the way that I would then know that I was not hurting them too much. That yeah. I wasn't hurting them, actually. That it was just a, like a, okay, this oh. feels a bit like yes. discomfort. Um, but when they got to about nine, I said to both of my kids... I said, you, I will never give you a smack again, you, ever. We will find another way. So I'm not saying that you're never ever going to be in trouble. And you're not telling me that you're never ever going to be naughty again. But in terms of discipline, a smack is no longer part of your... A hiding on your bum yeah. is no longer part of the discipline in our relationship, in our family. And so closing the loop back to the, the spirituality conversation, we got to a similar point with my kids. Um, probably also around about nine or ten when they said, I don't want to go anymore. It was, okay, you're getting old enough, that's fine, I get it, you make the choice, and you're not being forced to. My son right now has, um, he's, yeah, I'd say he's, he's quite skeptical. He's got quite a skeptical um, view of spirituality, faith. Probably closer to an atheistic rather than agnostic cool. view. So my daughter, at 12 and a half right now, I think she, um, I, just, I don't think it's actually a huge part of her yeah. framework, her reflection, um, the, the things that she's dealing with and grappling with. They, they don't, neither of them have friends in the social circle that draw them into a church or a faith community, but I'm not worried about that because my view of faith and our relationship with God is and this is one of the things where I've grown is there, there are 7 billion people on the planet um, and that's just alive right now if we go through history you know you're talking about multiples of Absolutely. that you know um, I have of those 7 billion people I maybe have 30 that I would call friends 7 or 8 that I'd call good friends 100 that I'd call associates Yeah. not one of those 100 people do I have the same relationship with? The relationship's different. It has different starting points, different content. Diff- yeah. So why would I be telling God that God has to have the same structured, formulaic connection with um, 7 billion people? If yeah. God is God, if God is bigger than anything in creation, then the one person, the one individual who is capable of developing completely unique spiritual connections with everybody is God yeah um, and it's for me it's 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 the height of arrogance mm. to for us as human beings to tell God how God can connect with us yes yeah so I think there are there are spaces where we where we get our sense of identity and our spiritual identity there, there were when I was in the Middle East there were some people who were incredibly spiritual Muslims who I looked at and I thought wow I don't get your faith I don't understand it there are a number of tenets and part of it that I disagree with that I, that don't feel right to me yeah. but when I look at you if I went to heaven if I died and went to heaven today 
I would expect to bump into you yeah. on the street corner. And there are a couple of people in my church community who, if I bumped into them on the same street corner up in heaven, I'd be a little bit surprised if they were there. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it's not so it would, and that's because it's about God, not about us. Mm. Um, so coming back to my kids, right now, I think it's it's a similar thing, is I'm creating space for them to, in fact, not for them, for God to connect with them in a way that makes sense to them as and when they're ready to cool. hear him. And I, he- and I hope that when God reaches out and connects, that my children are mature and open-minded enough to respond. Cool. Because I don't think God will ever yeah. force anything. How was it being a Christian in the Middle East? Mm, easier than being a Buddhist. Because... Um, this time I wasn't frowning, I was raising my eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason I say that being a Buddhist or being a Hindu or anything or is because in the Middle East they so Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all draw or they call the Abrahamic religions. So we all have our ultimate roots in Abraham. Yeah. And so and all three religions um, so would look to Jesus Christ and in fact Islam has a closer relationship with Jesus Christ than Judaism does. So for Islam, um, Jesus Christ is a significant prophet. Um, and so being a Christian in the Middle East was not a major issue. In fact, had some really awesome conversations with uh, a number of colleagues and friends that I, that I picked up there. Again, in Saudi Arabia in particular, they're one of the most, one of the more fundamentally closed off um, mm. Muslim countries in the world so it wasn't like there was a church that I could go to yeah. my spirituality my spiritual life wasn't dependent on that um, so it was it was cool it was a, in fact it was a great life experience what it did was it made me look look back in church history and I mean so Saudi Arabia is a society where the imams and the religious authorities determine and dictate a lot of what happens yeah. so the king and the royal family have a lot of power and influence, but often they are the hands of the imams and okay. religious authorities. Um, so the, the Saudi king is called the caretaker or the keeper of the two great mosques in Mecca and Medina. Um, but ultimately, you know, he's the caretaker. The the imams, you know, and the they're, they're the guys who actually determine the theology and the okay. practice there. So going back in church history. For a large part of the last 2,000 years, the church dominated Western history. You know, it dominated the, the history mm-hmm. of Europe um, as we then went into expanding and, you know, Western Europe actually moving across and colonizing the world. A lot of that was done, you know, with the you know, the church sponsored it and you put a missionary on the boat as well as the, the captain and they took Christianity with them wherever they yeah. went and it was a big part of colonialism and stuff and yeah it was it was a really interesting reflection for me looking in a society today that functions in a way that I think the Europe functioned in the Middle Ages and realizing that yeah you know we were critical of fundamentalist Islam but the reality is that we have huge parts Mm. of Christian history where we were as fundamental if not more and we did more horrific things than um, even the most fundamentalist conservative um, Muslim communities may be doing today and we have a lot to be accountable for through church history yeah so today Mm. 
what do you do? What are you doing to, as, a, as a career today? <laughs> so I'm because a, it is after all a Thursday afternoon at 11 minutes past 2 and you are sitting as if you've got nowhere to go <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a professional speaker so what I do is I travel around the world and I go to conferences events and organizations and I speak about the future of work so how's the world of work changing what does that mean why what do we do with that information and so I look at the macro trends that are beginning to shift and change our, our world of work and through those trends and obviously big digitization is a very big one how is digitization affecting money AI. so yeah but how's it affecting money so yeah. this is one of the areas that I focus on so under so the trends would be the big umbrella and then under that I kind of have two main focus areas the one would be the future of money how is money being changed? Because when money changes, the world changes. Um, as we look back through history, that's if one of the. If you say money, do you mean the the, the, the physical brand, no, or do you mean the, the meaning attached? The the means by which we transact value. Okay, cool. So if we go back through history, when we moved from hunter gatherers into towns and villages, that social shift happened. But what bedded it down and made it that we were, there's no going back was when we shifted from barter to yeah. coins because that then created marketplaces and a person who didn't have access to land but who you know who had a skill did something so um uh, let me think of something that you would a baker a baker you know didn't actually have access to the wheat and all this stuff a baker mm. really just had a fire yeah um a fire and ability but the baker could then go and before the baker would then have to find ways to barter and get things done. But now a baker could go and say, this one, one loaf of bread is worth two silver coins. Mm. And actually the silver coins, then that then bettered it down. So yeah. I could now go and take those two silver coins that somebody gives me for a loaf of bread and I could go and buy exactly what I want the next day. Yeah. Whereas with barter, I would get, you'd give me two chickens for the two, for the loaf of bread. I didn't have to go and take the one chicken to go and barter for something else. Yeah. So... Anyway, so hunter-gatherers, towns and villages, we moved from barter to coins. The industrial era, we moved from coins to paper. In 1948, we, the first computer, ENIAC, was created. Two years later, Diners Club came out with the first credit card. Ah. We moved from paper to plastic. And now we're at the space... Oh, credit card's that old? 1950. Oh, my word. The first Diners Club credit that. card was in 1950. Oh, so I learned something today <laughs> as well. And, uh, you know, in 1989, the creation of the internet... Worldwide, the, the yeah. HTTP protocol, the World Wide Web. You know, we got a little bit of e-commerce, those things, but really now, for the first time since 1989, we get into a space where money is physically beginning to transact and to move through the internet. Where, um, you know, you can you'll sit here and you'll pay for things, and um, when yeah. you're paying in ones and zeros, you're not physically taking money. Yeah. In fact, I think we're gonna we're gonna have conversations with our grandchildren. And we, you know, they're going to sit. We're going to say to me, "Yeah, I used to carry half a dead forest, you know, inside <laughs> half a dead cow, which I strapped into a pocket in the back of my pants. And if I wanted to get something done, I would reach in and I would take out the dead cow and I pull out parts of the forest out of that. And that's right. And then I'd carry back to, and the children will look at us and say, "What? I cannot believe that's where you, you are so will be crazy." Mark, exactly. I mean, our grand—they'll they, think that we absolutely. How did we live in a world like that? Yeah. Because for them, just the the transaction or the mm. transmission of value will be instantaneous, seamless. 
and it won't even be something that they'll even consciously do. Yeah. Um, they, they talk about um, Trekonomics, um, and it comes back to, so you know in Star Trek? Yeah. You ever seen anybody pay for anything in Star Trek? Not, no. Because you get it, and what happens is, is the value transaction just happens seamlessly in the background. And that's kind of the future we're moving towards. So okay. how's money changing? Because when money changes, the world changes. And we're in that space right now for the first time of money really beginning to change. So this digital world we're in, it's not like hold your breath and it's going to go away. Because money is changing yeah. in line with that, we know that the way we live, the way society is put together is changing fundamentally forever. Okay. And then the second big thing I look at is people. So what does a high-performing person look like? Because when my dad entered the world of work in the 1950s, take a high-performing person in that world of work, then imagine the world of work our children are going to enter into in the next 15 or 20 years. Put that high-performer from the 50s into a time machine, and um, overnight, that person will go from being a high-performer to a non-performer. Not because they've changed, but because the context within which they function has changed. So, I mean, what you're talking about now, you know, so um, it's quarter, you know, quarter past two on a Thursday afternoon, and I'm, I'm here because the world of work has changed yeah. and I no longer actually have to sit behind a desk. Um, I can get, I'm getting an airplane. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to the Philippines in late September and I'm flying out for four hours and I'm getting an airplane and flying back. Oh. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> yeah. well, when I say four hours, I'm oh. planning, I'm doing four hours worth of work. I'm yeah. going to be there overnight, one night and I'm flying back, you know, for our parents, Yes. That would have been like 15 stops on a propeller-driven airplane. <laughs> For our grandparents, that trip would have been three weeks on a yeah. boat. For us, I go, I'm there and back before the jet lag hits. <laughs> My children ask me, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll phone me and they say, Daddy, where are you? And I say, I'm in New York. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. we were just, I was just wondering if you could kind of come and pick me up from school. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Mom will take you. It's like... My yeah. kids like it's not like are you around the court? It's where in the world are you? Because yeah. I can. It's just the way that Amazing, it is, yeah. and that's just the world that we live in today. It's like a, a client and I spoke earlier about me flying into Thailand, contracting at the airport and flew back. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that that's what happened. Yeah. Do you work for yourself? Or do you work associated no, with a company? So I, I have associations, associates, but now I work for myself. Okay. So what I have is I use my network. Okay. So one of the interesting, again, little phrase I talk about, talented people run in herds. Talented people have talented friends. So you, who you know today is more valuable than what you know. And so I have a network of people that I carry with me. And if I go into a client and there's something that needs to get done that I can not or do not want to deliver, I bring in people from my network and cool. other people deliver it. So... I'm a solopreneur in the sense that most of the time I'm working on my own, but I'm never a lonelypreneur. Okay. In the sense that I, you know, that I, yeah. I, I don't have contacts. I can pick up the phone and have a great conversation, connect with people. Pretty much any city that I fly into, there's someone that I can have dinner with or have a cup of coffee with or whatever. Awesome. Because you know that's yeah. the reality of a global network. So. Cool. Last question is: mm. You recent, not recently, you've been dating. And yeah. does your girlfriend have the same spiritual background, spiritual taking as you? No, not at all. And how, how's that working for you? 
Well, it's very interesting because <laughs> in, in, I'm glad this isn't a therapeutical environment because how does that working for you in, in therapy <laughs> is normally very negative. <laughs> so no, so my, my girlfriend and I are. It's very interesting because I just actually sent her a message like two days ago, and I said one of the things that I love about our relationship is that we're so different. But we've, in our difference, we find ways to take the bits where we are dissimilar mm-hmm. and actually find ways for those gaps to actually overlock and co- or overlay and cause a place where we almost lock in together rather than seeing the places we are dissimilar yeah. and getting out a hammer and chisel and trying to break those yeah. edges off to make ourselves s- similar versions of each other. Because yes. I said... In that process, what we end up doing is we actually make both of us smaller versions of who yeah. we are and we diminish ourselves rather than um, taking the areas where we're so dissimilar, locking them together makes both of us bigger. Nice. And so with our spirituality, it's the same thing. So her view is, is very different to mine. And it's, this side as well. <laughs> yeah. And it, what it, it just we have, we have good conversations. We are... At times, I'm you know I raise a little bit of skepticism about it. You know she'll get, uh, you know, but we'll we have conversations, and in the process, it's exactly what I spoke about about Fowler's whole thing, yeah. is I'm getting questions and conversations and perspectives, in my spiritual developments and adding layers to my faith, that I wouldn't normally consider or be exposed to yeah. or have an opportunity to integrate, um, so. Yeah, that's. I think if if we both had very young children, and we were looking and saying, okay, cool, how are we going to have a conversation with our children to um, help them get some of their their basic spiritual foundations and and this, I think that would be a very different dynamic. Yeah. But because we've both got grown up kids, um, and our parents, our primary foundational parenting in that stage of our children's lives is done. Um, I think that we have a, a real um, space where we're getting the value out of our difference. Oh, cool. And our differences rather than trying to find a space where we actually have to become mini-me's. Yeah, convert um, each other. Yeah, and that's not the case at all. <laughs> awesome. Mm. Raymond, thank you very much. Thanks, this was lovely. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And you must enjoy the rest of your Thursday afternoon. We will. And look after yourself. I found this talk fascinating. I love Raymond's open-minded approach to Christianity and enjoyed hearing about this journey to that place even more. I hope you enjoyed it too. For the non-Afrikaans-speaking listeners, which I'm becoming aware of when I see the Anchor FM statistics, I use an Afrikaans sentence. When I translate what I said, it comes to the following. My grandmother always said that sometimes a good hiding is better for a child than the Bible. On the statistics side of things, I want to thank all my listeners. Wow! Meet Me in the Field has been downloaded from my website for more than 30,000 times now. And on Anchor FM, I see that I have listeners in America, Sweden, Norway, the UK, Spain, even India, France and Iran. That's amazing! If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor, or on Twitter at, at @RensburgFreddy, or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end.
I want to thank Raymond for his time and energy in chatting to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you all from all over the world for listening. Be safe. Bye-bye.